I think that one of the most, indeed perhaps the very most important question we can answer in desiring to live a spiritually grounded life is how we handle our conflicts, both internally within ourselves and how we also handle conflicts between ourselves, that which seems or might even promise in a negative way to divide us within our own hearts or between us as people. And so I want to open today with a very, very old Zen story that is from a place in the culture that's very, very different from our own, as you'll hear in just a second. And it's about a very young woman named Senjo. Senjo grew up in a very rural village a very, very long time ago. And she was raised by her father alone. And from her earliest, earliest days that she can remember, her favorite person, her favorite playmate was a young boy named Ocho. Senjo and Ocho really grew up together. Many people in the village always thought that the two of them would make a great pair, a great match, would make a great marriage together. They were not just drawn to each other in a sense of play, but in a sense of perhaps what we might call, quote unquote, you know, soulmates. They really seemed natural together. And so it was with great sadness that one day when Senjo was an older teen, Senjo's father said to her, I have met another family from a village up the river from us, and I have made a great match for you, for you to be married. And this absolutely broke Senjo's heart because she really felt she belonged with Ocho. And when Ocho heard this news, he felt, even though it was the thing that people did then in his time and his place that he had to leave his village because he could not stand to see his beloved have an entirely different life and not with him. And so one night near midnight, he went down to the river and got into a small boat and said, I am leaving here. I am going elsewhere to start a new life. And Senjo saw this. She saw Ocho getting into a boat, preparing to leave forever from their village. And she said, I want to go with you. She hopped into the boat. They rowed many, many miles down the river and found a different place, a different village, a place where they could start anew. And they did. They built a house. They grew up in a different community. They raised a family. And then many years after that, 10, 15 years down the road, Ocho came in one day and he saw Senjo sitting at their kitchen table. And she looked so incredibly sad. She said, I miss my father. I miss the community that is ours. And Ocho said, yes, I do too. Perhaps, perhaps we can go back. And so they gathered up their family and rode back up the river from the way that they came and they docked there on this little port outside of their original village. And Ocho said, wait just one moment here. I will, I will go see your father. Perhaps we don't know what his reactions will be. And he knocked on the door. And as he knocked, Senjo's father opened the door to their house. And at first he was very happy to see Ocho. He said, I've, I've missed you. Welcome back. Welcome home. And Ocho said, Yes, Senjo and I, with our children now, we have returned. Senjo's father's face took on an odd visage, befuddled, bewildered, almost angry. He said, no, from the moment that you have left here years ago, Ocho, from the moment you left here, 
Senjo has been barely able to speak, almost as if she has been in a fevered state. And in fact, she's lying down in the bedroom, in her room in the back of the house. And Ocho protested, said, no, 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 we have been together all these years. We've created, we started a family of grandchildren to show you. And Senjo's father grew angrier and angrier. And finally, he rousted the the Senju who had been sick out of bed. And he said, I'm going I'm to show you. I'm going to show you that the woman you've been with is an imposter. And he brought the Senju who had been sick down to the dock and down to the boat. And the Senju who had been living with Ocho all these years down the river got up out of the boat. And the two Senjos looked at each other and embraced and instantly became one Senjo. Now, this is a little bit of a koan, a riddle. It doesn't actually make sense. It's a fanciful tale. But after a week like the one that we've had, I think about this story, about giving ourselves permission not to split off from ourselves or split off between ourselves, but to allow to give ourselves permission to experience kind of that wholeness, whatever our emotions and whatever our experience has been. Too many people, from my perspective, my experience, have talked this week about closure. I'm not sure such a thing truly exists. And so today I'd rather talk about openness, openness to the differing emotions, the different experiences, thoughts, sensations that many of us may have felt in the week now since we have learned that Osama bin Laden was killed. There have been many emotional responses to this happening. Now, some of you might know the first big public display. Do you know where it was? The Phillies game. That's right. (laughs) Citizens Bank Park. At the moment that the news came through, I would venture a guess that in terms, because it was 11 o'clock at night, it probably was the single largest gathering of tens of thousands of people anywhere in America. And you know what happened instantly, almost instantly, as news started to ripple through the crowd? USA. USA. Like the full Homer Simpson. You know, just without the honking and the lights blaring. USA. USA. Now, I'm going to be honest. It wouldn't have been my initial reaction in the same way. Um, but I didn't expect like a UPenn human rights or international law class to break out at Citizens Bank Park at a Phillies game. You know, it's kind of like expecting that an American Cattle Association of the cattle ranchers would start wanting to hand out free tofu to everyone. You know, there's a certain character of rooting and also probably sort of nationalism at a lot of sporting events. But we know it wasn't just there. It was outside the White House and at that hallowed and pained ground of Ground Zero. All over, people gathered to express a whole range of emotions. And probably the most dominant thing that I felt as I observed what was going on was a kind of ding-dong, the witch is dead kind of energy. You know, that moment of the Wizard of Oz, ding-dong, the witch is dead, a kind of glee in that almost. And I wondered, although I can't be sure, I don't think anyone can, can be completely sure, were they celebrating death? Were they celebrating a death or maybe they were celebrating something else. Maybe there was a relief, maybe a sense that justice was long in coming and finally here because the death of this man who had caused the death of so many. And it got me thinking about other public outpourings at times in our nation's past. It got me thinking of of this photo that some of you might remember. If you see this one, it's coming up soon. There we go. You recognize that famous photo from VJ Day, the end of world war 2 
wonder what the people in that photo were experiencing. wonder what mixture of relief or justice or anger or vengeance or just release they were feeling. All these things probably were there at the same time that they were here with many of our fellow citizens this past Sunday night. Now, it is in the day after. It's always in the day after, the moments after, that we start to understand our emotions. Hopefully, neither stuffing them down, nor either saying, because we felt them, because we felt they they must be exactly right. Because to feel is to know is to do. But a deeper kind of maturity, both spiritual and emotional and cognitive, invites us to observe ourselves and see what is there, maybe after the initial impulses come out. I heard this kind of complexity of self-analysis, this ability to be able to name different emotions almost simultaneously. In a writer, to the blogger Andrew Sullivan that he published this past week. The man started out his email to Andrew Sullivan by first identifying himself as a Catholic and then secondarily as someone who was on the 65th floor of, I believe it was, Tower 2. It was the second tower to go down on September 11, 2001. And he said that the first thing that he felt, really the first thing he exclaimed literally said out loud, and you'll know these initials when I say them, F.U. Osama bin Laden. That was the first thing that he felt. He said the second thing he did was he poured himself a really, really tall glass of whiskey. But then he went upstairs and he looked at his sleeping wife and sleeping three children. And he remembered that on September 11th, 2001, His wife was four months pregnant with their eldest. And he thought, if I would have been one, like many of my friends, many people that I knew that day who did not survive, I was lucky. I saw the towers fall. I had the ash on me. I wasn't that ash, he seemed to be saying. He knew that if he didn't survive, none of this, none of this he would have been able to witness and two of his kids wouldn't have even been alive. And then, right at the end of his email, this message he sent to Andrew Sullivan, he said, In that moment, I prayed for Jesus' full mercy upon Osama bin Laden. Both the anger and the vindication and the relief, and then also even the ability to pray for a man who almost took his life away. To me, this is an example of someone who knows what it is to have enemies, to have enemies that almost took his very own life. And yet at the same time, not to have to need enemies to be himself. When I think about the image of a person like this, actually, it's a fictional character that comes up. It's this character. It's Tom Hanks from Saving Private Ryan. If you remember Saving Private Ryan, if you've seen the movie, you know that he is A captain, he is a good soldier, he cares for his troops, he knows his cause is just in World War II. And yet you get the sense simultaneously that he has no hatred in his heart for those that he fights. 
This is a person who knows that he has enemies, but does not need to have enemies. And there is a very important distinction in that. I also think of this kind of tension, this healthy tension, which doesn't get resolved. It just exists. It just exists with Julia Ward Howe, a woman who some of you may know was a, was a Unitarian, an activist in her time, who authored at the beginning of the Civil War because she believed so firmly in the Union cause and against the decrepit evil of slavery that she penned the battle hymn of the Republic to praise the troops that she saw and perceived fighting on the side of what was good. And then Julia Ward Howe, only nine years later, particularly on this day, it's important to remember, before it was a hallmark holiday, before the hearts and flowers and all that good stuff, that's all wonderful. But to remember, Mother's Day began in Julia Ward Howe's Mother's Day proclamation, which was a call, as she saw it, to the women of the world to grieve for the loss of all the bloodshed and all the violence and all the lives that had been lost in this war that she had once supported and to say, can we as women, but also as people, can we start to commit our hands and open our hearts to a different way of being with each other? That was her Mother's Day proclamation. One does not negate the other. They exist together and simultaneously. Some of you have been around for a while know that just this last month I uh, completed a message series on everyday nonviolence, on living peacefully every day. And after one week, after Osama bin Laden's death, I am exactly what I was back then, which is an anti-violence non-pacifist. I am an anti-violence non-pacifist. Because I believe... Injustice. Because I believe that the blood and the ash in the stones of Ground Zero and the Pentagon and west of here in Shanksville and in Dar es Salaam and in Nairobi, that there is still blood in those stones caused by Osama bin Laden, the murderer, the unrepentant murderer that cries out for justice. Some people have started to ask the question in this past week, and some people have also said, no, it's too soon. Can Osama bin Laden been forgiven? It brings to my mind the great question posed by uh, the great Christian author C.S. Lewis, who said, if we really want to wrestle with the burden of forgiveness and talking about the tyrants of his age, he says, perhaps we should start with a little less degree of difficulty than the Gestapo. Perhaps we should bring it a little bit closer here to our own lives. And I almost think the question of forgiveness for Osama bin Laden, at least from a human perspective, is almost moot. Because he never asked for it. He never showed any signs of remorse or regrets or any indication that he wanted to live his life in any different fashion that he did. So I can say that, yes, I support that our troops killed Osama bin Laden and consider it justice. And at the same time, I also, and I have searched myself all week on this, I've almost tried to feel it, but I don't. I feel absolutely no pleasure in this act whatsoever. I feel no joy. 
I have listened to the words that some of you I know even put up on your Facebook pages or online that I've seen over and over again this week from the Hebrew Scriptures. Proverbs 24, do not rejoice when your enemies fall and do not let your heart be glad when they stumble. I think these words are incredibly insightful psychologically and spiritually for us because they bring to mind one of my one of my favorite Buddhist teachings about having enemies but not needing enemies. Buddha said, it is not our own, excuse me, it is our own minds, not our enemies or our foes, but our own minds that lure us to evil ways. That is why I cannot celebrate death. Because to choose to celebrate death no matter how horrible the person who has died, is to choose to put myself and my own mind and my own heart in league with those who choose to celebrate death and who despise life. Part of the recognition of this for me is to recognize it is not just Osama bin Laden that despised death and willed the death of thousands. It's the death of some people that are a little bit... Well, I can't say close to me personally, but closer to, quote unquote, our side. I remember these words from Ann Coulter. Perhaps some of you remember them as well, too. September 12th, 2001, less than 24 hours almost when the fires were still raging, the bodies still smoldering. And Ann Coulter said, racing into that space of broken hearts, says we should invade their countries. We should kill their leaders and we should convert them all to Christianity. I remember the words that I heard from a head of the Israeli Defense Forces in the 1980s when talking about eventually when they will have total victory over their enemies. He said, when we have settled the land, all the Arabs will be able to do is to scurry around like drugged cockroaches in a bottle. That is not justice. That is bloodlust. That is needing enemies. That is seeing under the patina of justice, in fact, the desire to humiliate, the desire to dehumanize and to crush. And the thing is, when we live in that way, ultimately, we dehumanize ourselves as well. I have to say, from my perspective, what I really wished, what I really would have wished for is that there would have been a full trial for Osama bin Laden's crimes. I wish we could have had that capacity. I wish our generation would have had our opportunity to have our Nuremberg trials in which the unrelenting record of the depravity of the intentional injustice that Osama bin Laden inflicted on thousands worldwide, that it all could have come out. And yet, sadly, I feel in absolutely the next thought, and I'm not talking about you or me individually, I'm talking about who this nation is right now collectively, maybe it won't always be so. I don't think we're mature enough for that kind of accounting right now. Because justice brings up how we are involved as well, too. And in that reckoning, we would have to recognize that our side has done some things that perhaps we are not proud of and that are unjust as well in the last decade. I did get some comfort this week 
And perhaps as you heard the story of how the action to kill Osama bin Laden unfolded, that some of the intelligence went back several years. And indeed, since this last fall, that the administration, the military and the CIA has known about probably where he was for months and that they elected not to order a drone attack, a targeted missile attack upon where he was for a couple reasons. But key among those reasons was that they did not want to cause harm, damage, or kill the innocent civilians who lived nearby. That is that urge for justice, not collective punishment. And so instead they elected for that targeted, more risky seal strike to minimize the risks upon civilians. This is not, as they say about revenge, the dish that is best served cold. This is not waiting and waiting and wanting to taste that delicious revenge until we can feel we're so angry that it feels like an eruption and we feel justified. This is something different that taking time and taking space to do things in the most targeted way. This is, I think, a sober form of justice that does not confuse itself with vengeance or hatred This is not a justice that is drunk on power or revenge or even drunk on justice itself because even in the name of justice, we can cause harm to other human beings. It takes a really developed sensibility to hold these two tensions together, to want our urging for justice not to become revenge, not to become a desire to really stick it. To the enemy. Probably the person who I think most lifted up this kind of sober justice, clear eyed justice, even open hearted justice in his time, particularly in relationship to the question of power, was a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr that some of you might know through the Serenity Prayer. Some of you have said those words over and over again throughout the years. He was the author of the Serenity Prayer, but he also was in his time and his place the foremost both advocate and critic of American power and its usages to try and resist totalitarianism. He criticized those who were on the right wing, people like Ann Coulter, who would say that simply because America does something makes it axiomatically, automatically correct. We did it. We have a just cause. We don't have dirty hands at all. He said that there are those who would cover every ambiguity of good and evil in our actions by the frantic insistence that any measure we take in a good cause must be unequivocally virtuous. He said no. No one's goodness, no nation's goodness can so be taken for granted that everything they do gets that blank check of justice. And he also, Reinhold Niebuhr said to his fellow progressives, and I count myself among them. Reinhold Niebuhr was one of the first theologians who got my mind spiritually racing and appealed to my heart. He admonished those closest as well to this tradition. Those who he said would renounce the responsibilities of wielding power responsibly for the sake of preserving the purity of their own souls. Desire to have the purity of our own souls intact sometimes means that we won't refuse to enter the fray when we see others suffering and we wonder if it will compromise how good we really think 
we are should be. The purity of the soul, the desire for it, also takes the form of denial of reality, that other people are suffering or there is injustice that is part of our world. I heard this over and over again, sadly, this week with uh, and some from some um, Facebook friends. And well, it's a very elastic term, Facebook friends. Some who started to say, well, bin Laden really wasn't so bad. Bin Laden wasn't really responsible for 9-11. And perhaps the deepest conspiracy there is that bin Laden died in 2002. And we've been keeping him all alive in the public imagination just to stir up ourselves and keep people thirsting for vengeance. To face reality and to face reality without denial means that sometimes those of us who do love peace and who do strive to live peacefully on a daily basis is also admitting at the same time, sometimes, yes, at the cost of the purity of our souls, that peaceful means are sometimes not enough to guarantee justice. This is why my favorite prayer of Niebuhr's is not the serenity prayer, as many hundreds, almost thousands of times, now that I've said that on my own or said it in small groups of people, but the Niebuhr prayer that ends with the affirmation, the deeply saving affirmation that says we can believe in the final form of love, which is forgiveness. Because sometimes we don't know what the unalloyed, absolutely beautiful, true, completely just, easy thing to do. For many of us, on a much smaller scale kind of way, this is just what it is to be alive. It means that sometimes all of us are called to make choices with incomplete information and not knowing exactly what the right thing is to do and feeling that, yes, because we finally have to act, we may be compromising some part of ourselves, but still we need to act. And at the same time saying that this regret or this conflicted conscience or whatever it is, however we feel it, doesn't mean that we are weak. And it doesn't mean that we don't have values. It just means that when we see injustice and when we see suffering, we feel that we must do something. When I think back to this past Sunday night and I think about what truly made me so uncomfortable about those public displays, thinking how it might be seen in other countries, thinking how people might interpret or misinterpret perhaps those public displays of people coming together, I thought that finally sober justice, a truly sober justice requires restraint requires a kind of restraint, not that we don't allow ourselves to feel things, but we ask ourselves, how will this action be beheld by other people? It means from my firm commitment that I can take no joy in death itself. It is sometimes to say that actually the purity of the soul is not the deepest aspiration that I really want for myself or I'd wish for anyone. Sometimes in this world, and we all know this, we know that the world doesn't fit together. We can't figure it all out. We can't put the pieces together. Not everything goes together like the pieces of the puzzle neatly, and we have the full picture, and everything looks all right. 
But what I also want to say is the most mature form of spirituality is not having the insistence that everything has to be figured out conceptually. I think a deeper call is not to figure things out, because very often that's work we want to do with our minds, but to become the kind of people who can simply hold opposites together, who can hold conflicting emotions together and not have to insist either or. The humorous way of putting this is done by the great poet Walt Whitman, who anticipated his own critics in Leaves of Grass. And he says, do I contradict myself? I love, almost you can feel him shrugging his shoulders. Very well then, I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. There's a lot in us as human beings. And it doesn't all get sorted out in a way that we would wish and make sense. In a tragic way as well, though I think about what is for me the favorites, my favorite movie of the post-September 11th era. It's The Dark Knight. It's the second Batman movie. That movie is all about sober justice. All about recognizing that sometimes suffering is caused intentionally by those who wish to inflict harm on innocent people. And if we would stand by and say no... I want to remain pure. We are consenting to what is going on. And yet at the same time, sober justice, especially in the dark night, and we see this in the characters. It calls us to right wrongs without becoming the form or the image of what we oppose in the first place. The dark night and sober justice is all about the need to toughen our minds enough to ask difficult questions and to forgive ourselves for not having purity of soul when we cannot find the easy answers. And yet at the same time to make our souls and our hearts tender enough to still care and to hold the truth of our lives. Tough minds and tender souls, and yet too often it seems it is the reverse, that there are weak minds unwilling to ask difficult questions and hard hearts unwilling to recognize the suffering around us. In our staff meeting this past week, we were talking, processing through our different emotions about the killing of Osama bin Laden, and the movie Waiting for Superman was brought up. Any of you ever seen that? It's a really powerful, troubling (laughs) No easy answer kind of film about the crisis in public education, particularly for those people who live and those kids who live in inner cities. And one of the things that was brought up at our meeting was that in all the educational testing that's been done sort of worldwide in 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 countries that do that, American kids didn't score all that high. But for one thing, you know what we scored the most high in? (laughs) Self-esteem. Our kids scored really high, not on the values of education or math or English or whatever it is or any kind of language, but on feeling really good about themselves that they did really good on that test. Sober justice requires ourselves, all of us, I believe, to anchor our values in something deeper and bigger and more valuable than just how we feel about ourselves. I talked in the last month about the practice of self-compassion, which Christina Neff, the Buddhist practitioner and professor who studies self-compassion, said it's not at all self-esteem. Self-compassion is most valuable, and indeed compassion for other people, particularly those who suffer because of injustice, is so important when we can't automatically 
feel good about ourselves all the time. Feeling good about ourselves is an addiction. And I think it's that kind of addiction that leads us to the kind of place that perhaps, perhaps Sanjo knew when she was the sick Sanjo and the one who had headed down the river toward a new life. So what I want to say at the end of this week, still trying to figure out what it all means, whether you felt celebration or regrets or just plain old relief, or whether you're feeling here right today, as I think many people are justified to feel, which is fear. Maybe nothing is over at all. <laughs> Maybe just one person has been killed, but it does not mean we have defeated what opposes us. So I want to say, actually, closure is not where I am today. Now, maybe if I were related to one of the 9-11 families, I would feel a sense of closure. You know, just a little bit that one of the people primarily responsible for killing my loved ones just as had come to his door. But as much as we might all like to claim it, we're not all 9-11 families. We're Americans. At least I believe most of us in this room. And so I would encourage us, instead of talking about closure, to talk about how we can open. How we can stay open with these powerful and potent emotions. And I'll ask you to show that next and final slide. It's a little washed out, but some of you might recognize. Those are the gates of St. Paul's Chapel. Part of the Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan. That in the immediate aftermath of the attack was completely covered by ash and dirt and destruction. And some of you might know the story of this particular church that it became a hub, a center for caring, where all of those thousands of people who worked in the salvage, which shares the same root as salvation, by the way, down at ground zero, where at any time of day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they could come into this church and be fed and nurtured and cared for. If you could get close to this picture, you would see that, yes, probably with the flags, there are a desire for maybe some vengeance or maybe some justice. If you could get even closer, you would see as well, heartbreakingly, little small pictures of those who perished in the towers. What we would see here, I think, is everything and no desire at all to figure it all out. We would see the presence of justice and love. We would see the presence of power and humility. We would see the togetherness, just as Sanjo finally knew the togetherness, of action and distance and intimacy and reflection. This ground zero is not just, for many people, holy ground and common ground because something awful happened there. It is also holy ground and common ground because of what we can see in this picture. That there are blood and ashes and anger and compassion and service and suffering. And that there is both love and the desire for justice there. Perhaps in turning back to that, we will also find a different way forward. 
I think what we see in this picture is the ultimate and final and most powerful no rejection of the kind of life that Osama bin Laden lived and all violent fundamentalists live. Because fundamentalism as at its core psychological need is the desire for life always to make sense and to feel that we can always understand it. But I would say that we don't understand this. I would say that we can feel it. And to know that it is there and was there is to know also that it can be here and is still very much a part of us. Today, with whatever you have felt this past week and whatever you will continue to feel, I would just invite you to do this. Open to it. Open to it as naturally as you would open to something that you love. Open to it and feel in this way the deepest affirmation possible of who you are. Amen. And may you live in blessing.